Welcome to the Faith Effects Podcast, where life and faith meet. You know, Mark, I I remember vividly as a kid that I looked forward to my 16th birthday, especially as it got closer, because where I grew up in Western Canada back in the day, every kid I knew, every kid on their 16th birthday went to the local government office uh, for a rite of passage, a really important rite of passage. That is, you'd go and you'd get your driver's license. And for, you know, a kid growing up on the prairies and the in the 70s, like I did in the 80s, you know, uh, a car was not only or a driver's license wasn't only just a, a status symbol, but it enabled you to do so much. Uh, and to me, it was just, you know, the normal thing. And, and I remember being devastated to learn that my 16th birthday was going to fall on a Saturday when no government office would be open. And, and I was going to have to wait two days. And then it got worse because my dad reminded me that the Monday was going to be a statutory holiday. And so I was actually going to have to wait three more days past my 16th birthday to get my license. And I thought I was going to be just this object of ridicule. But it was interesting to me, particularly when I went to grad school uh, in uh, suburban New York City uh, and, and ran into people. Uh, particularly people from Manhattan, from the city, who weren't just 18 or 19 years old without their license, but were in their 30s, their 40s, and their 50s, who not only didn't own a car, they had never driven a car, they had never gotten their driver's license. And to me, that was just a just a cultural shock, one I didn't see coming, uh, because that date and that, that uh, opportunity meant so much to me. You, did you have anything like that? Any- oh, uh, entirely. I wrote my uh, learner's license on my 16th birthday. I think it was on a Tuesday. And I assumed that was the rite of passage of, as you did, of every 16-year-old. And it was m- many years later that I discovered the same thing you did, that, no, that was the rite of passage of a white middle-class kid Right. Who uh, whose parents had a couple cars and and they were fairly you know they were fairly recent edition cars and they were going to fork over or help you know pay for drivers uh, driving training and all of those sort of things. Mm-hmm. I thought every sixteen year old kid in Canada got that, and I realized no, I was actually part of a a, a tiny elite that got right. that. And I mean, my life since has been those moments of reckoning, those moments of awakening, those moments of, oh my goodness, I didn't know. I thought this was reality. And it turns out this is, well, let's just use the word, this is privilege. Right. Oh, very much so. And yeah, the things that I felt so robbed for over three days, uh, (laughs) three days, I was distraught and embarrassed. Were, were was a privilege that that so many people that I would come to know would come to be great friends uh, wouldn't know for a long time if at all so good uh, to, to start this way as we introduce a guest that is well known to you you go back a long ways and I just am getting the privilege to meet him uh, you'll introduce him in a moment but our guest today uh, talks about that world that you and I are, you know, 
have had a slow awakening to. You know, that lately uh, in the last couple of years, this word woke has been used in terms of somebody who comes into this sudden awareness of, uh, usually it's related to racial issues or some social justice issue. And now the word sort of become uh, a, by a byword, you know, that, that it's, it's dismissed or disdained by certain groups. But it's so crucial to realize the scripture, the God of the scripture is actually call, calling us to wake up, to shake off our slumber, to get out of our little, our, our little narrow perspective of how the world works and actually see how things really are. And our guest today is going to help us wake up. Right. And he not only is going to do that for us theoretically, but it was my friendship with him 25 years ago, that in some uh, very real ways for me, this Western Canadian prairie boy uh, did it. Did it actually brought me, gave me realizations uh, and and shocks and myth bustings that I never expected to have. So I'm looking forward to chatting with Vince Bacot on Faith Effects. All right. Well, it is great to have Vince Baco with us, and I've known Vince for a long, long time. But uh, currently, Vince serves as associate professor of theology and the director of the Center for Applied uh, Christian Ethics at Wheaton College. Uh, he's an author, written such books as uh, the one we're going to talk about today, Reckoning with Race and Performing the Good News. He also wrote The Political Disciple and The Spirit in Public Theology. Uh, and he's contributed to a number of other books, including uh, Black Scholars in White Space. He's uh, been an assistant theology editor for Christianity Today and has had uh, articles appear in magazines such as Books and Culture and Christianity Today and even Regeneration Quarterly. Now, Vince is an avid tennis player. Notice I didn't say he's really good, but he is avid. He's an avid tennis player. He's an occasional bass guitarist and is more than willing to talk about jazz and bass guitar uh, until you can't take it anymore. Uh, and is an incessantly curious person. One of my favorite memories about Vince is just his, the way if you brought something up, he would be quite interested at, at what you might've thought would be the most mundane things. Currently he lives in suburban Chicago with his family. Uh, and beyond that, and again, from repeated personal experience, I can tell you that Vince has the most unorthodox and yet, sadly, most effective hook shot on the basketball course that court that you will ever see. Uh, but best of all, uh, in my opinion, he's been my friend and colleague for 25 years. Vince, can you believe that? 25 years. Great to have you uh, here. It's great to great to be with you, and it's just surreal. <laughs> that was 25 years. I mean, it's, I mean, I'm starting my 22nd year at Wheaton. Uh, I started in January of 2000 and it's just wild, you know, I mean, I'm, but I'm so thankful, you know, for our friendship and, you know, the, the group of friends that, you know, we, we developed there at, at Drew was just, you know, just a, a great group and great friendships, great mutual support of each other. And, um, lots of great memories and great to always connect around AAR. Wow. Vince, uh, this is my first time getting to meet you. Scholar, athlete, musician, 
curious about a lot of things, Renaissance man, but give us a bit of a personal glimpse of who you are. What do you, how would you describe yourself, Vince? Uh, that's a really good question. Uh, you know, I, I wonder if it depends on what decade you're in, how you do that. But um, I think when I think about sort of the centerpiece of the way I see my life, I want to be like, you know, a faithful Christian who wants to have a living faith, uh, a person who it occurred to me at some point, look, I'm a theologian and ethicist. That's kind of the way I've always been. That's why my dissertation was, wasn't a strictly systematic theology dissertation and why my figure was a guy who was had his hand in politics and journalism and education uh, and who wanted people to have a public faith. Uh, so, you know, I'm a public theologian, some would say, um, but very interested in pretty much everything, which is a blessing and a curse, uh, because if you're interested in everything, you know, you don't always sustain uh, you know, your focus on a, on a particular thing, or it's hard to stay focused on that one thing because another interesting thing comes up and it's just very intriguing. It's like when Bernie was saying, you know, my eyes like, oh, hey, what's that? Oh, that's fascinating. That's interesting. Hmm. Interesting, interesting, interesting. I mean, that that's kind of, I've been that way since I was a kid. Uh, and, and, and I, and it's sort of the way that I think about my way of doing things. I'm kind of like a, my brain's like a giant synthesizing machine. Uh, there's just all this stuff that I'm curious in. It all takes it in. And then there's some kind of synthesis that comes out of it in the way that I, that I teach, preach, lecture, et cetera. And so like, I'm not the person that's always going to be dropping quotes about, well, you know, Augustine said, Aquinas said, I mean, you're going to get my synthesis that comes from all that kind of stuff. And I'll occasionally quote somebody, but, but it's just the synthesis is what emerges in my communication. I love that. It's so good when you can, uh, turn your life into a livelihood. And there's such a convergence, it sounds like to me, between who you are and what you get to do for a living. So, I did want to be a rock and roll star uh, at one point. I have to point that out. Um, so that's part of the whole musician thing. And I've, and I've been in a couple of bands. So, um, but, you know, I have friends who are professional musicians. I, I don't know that I could sustain that lifestyle, but. Right, and not uh, just rock and roll, right? You, Definitely not. Heavy metal. Like uh, yeah, absolutely. Rock metal. and roll. Yes, of course. <laughs> of course. Absolutely. I mean, I sometimes tell people that part of what the thing that animated me to become interested in faith and public life was because I wanted to be a rock and roll star. I was in a Bible study where people weren't really into that. And that was definitely in my metal phase at that point. A lot of Iron Maiden. Uh, and you know, uh, this wasn't exactly celebrated by other people in my Bible study. But it seemed to me like I could appreciate their music without wanting to be, you know, a sleazy person in the way that I went about doing, you know, my life. So I, I was like, yeah. no, I mean, it's awesome what they're doing. I mean, I want to be them. But I didn't have any categories for making that distinction at the time. Right. Yeah. And you also had a great dream. I, I'll, I'll always remember this. If your, your great goal when we were in grad school was to one day own your own. Oh, private jet. Private jet. There it is. Well, yeah, yeah, because yeah, Drew, <laughs> see, Mark, you don't know this, but Drew is in the flight line of Morristown International Airport. So every day there were a few private jets coming over. And to me, this was like, you know, like a drug, right? Oh, my gosh. There, there's another one. Oh, I wonder who's on, on that plane. I mean, how, how can I like get, you know, Lord, can I just somehow 
you know, can't sell enough books. I mean, to you know, <laughs> or enough connections to to be in one of those, please. You know, so yeah, I'm in print on that, by the way. Oh, are you? Okay. Yes. Why I want a private jet? My first regeneration oh, portal in the article. Yeah. Yeah. Should have become a televangelist. That's probably not, especially these days, the best route to take. I think. <laughs> anyway, let, let's see if we can sell some of those books and get you that jet plane. Uh, your most recent book, uh, Reckoning with Race and Performing the Good News in Search of a Better Evangelical Theology, was recently released by Brill, a big shot publisher, uh, and of course is available at online, uh, online retailers everywhere. I mean, the title to me, Vince, begs so very many good questions, but let's let's start at the beginning. Why a reckoning with race for evangelicals? Um, because you would think that people that are Bible-believing Christians are the ones that would be the exemplars of trying to live out the fullness of that. But there seems to have been either an apathy or even a resistance to addressing this horror show that's happened you know, with non-whites since the modern concept of race was introduced. And it always was interesting to me how in these evangelical settings, if there was a discussion about race, it was about an interpersonal thing. There wasn't much articulation about a systemic form of racism. And, uh, and there wasn't really taking seriously the experiences of uh, minorities. I mean, it was as if people were saying to minorities, I'll tell you what your experience is. I'll let you know when you have suffering. You know, a, very, a strong antagonism of, you know, 1 Corinthians 12, 26, where there's this language about if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. But instead, around race, what happens is that people instead say, well, I know you think you're suffering, but I'll let you know when there's real suffering. And if you have minorities experiencing that over and over again, it's like, well, I thought this was exciting to be in this, you know, learning about the Bible, trusting it. There's so many interesting things. Then I get to this. And all of a sudden, you know, the gears grind, you know, and it just goes, it wound up being a really bad experience for a lot of people. So, so, so to me, uh, and it's important to point out to me, you know, this particular project, uh, Amos Young sent me an email about doing this and said, uh, can you write something about an evangelical theology, sort of kind of in a different key? So, um, so I am writing it kind of like, you know, from, from as an insider. Um, and I think it's important to say, because some of the books that are dealing about race and evangelicalism are people who might have been on the inside, but they're kind of dissonant with it, or they, they're partially on the inside, but they're writing and looking at it and kind of critiquing it. What I'm talking about, well, let's talk about what evangelicalism is and how evangelicalism can be its better self on the question of race, but it can't be its better self on the question of race if there's no reckoning. Vince, I, uh, three weeks ago, listened to one of the faculty members at Ambrose where I teach, give a very impassioned reading of MLK's letter from Birmingham prison. And uh, many of us who listened to that were, were profoundly moved to tears again to hear this, this heart cry of MLK written to white clergy uh, back in the early 60s to say, 
will you not care about this? Will you, you stop hiding behind this apathy, this indifference? I'm also, yesterday was uh, meeting one of a book club where uh, of students where we're together reading Howard Thurman's Jesus and the Disinherited. A book goes to 1949 and a very eloquent um, argument about the very resources of the gospel to overcome systemic racism are, 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 it's almost like we've made it the gospel into a tool of, of the powerful to oppress those on the margins. Um, so, you know, that's, that book goes back 70 years now, over 70 years. So the question is, is why, why are we still here? Why is in some ways it's worse than it's ever been to the point where uh, the word evangelical has become a byword among many people. And a lot of people, especially minorities are asking, why do we, why do we stick around? When are we going to be done with it? You're still part of this evangelical fold. I mean, help us understand this, uh, your per perseverance in this. Sure. Well, I think one thing I'm going to say, I think in some ways it's, it's not worse than it's ever been. We just have greater exposure to what's been there. I mean, there's some things that are better. You know, uh, I'm currently an associate professor, but effective July 1, I'm full professor at Wheaton College. Okay. There just aren't a whole bunch of us out there. Uh, the, but, the, but, and at Wheaton College, I don't generally feel like I have to prove to people that I really, you know, I didn't do some kind of like voodoo or something to, to get people to believe that a, a black man could actually really be a professor. Right. So I don't, I mean, I, 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 I show up, I teach, and I don't worry about whether I have to do extra to prove to people that I really, you know, have some idea about what I'm talking about. So that's a change. I mean, I don't think 50 years ago that necessarily would have been the case. Um, but, you know, to have some advancement in just over half a century, when you've had at least two or three centuries, you know, depending on what year you want to start at in the United States, you want to start 1619, start 1776, whatever, you, you know, you have built into the society, into its DNA, almost hardwiring it, the code, you know, racial hierarchy. You know, I always tell my students to go, look, if you got a problem with talking about white supremacy, just answer this question. When Europeans built the modern world, because that's who built it, for whom did they build it? You think they built it for everybody? They didn't even build it for all Europeans. So much less for minorities. So it should surprise us that that's what happened. Now, in the context of these Bible-believing Christians who, are, who emerged out of that, I think people don't know how to deal with, you know, facing the horror of ways that Christians have been, had agency in antagonizing the second grace commandment by other human beings and making arguments for it, for, for that marginalization. And if not that, then at least people saying, well, you know, I think if you talk about this, you're being a communist. I mean, today, right now, there are people talking about, well, you know, whenever you talk about this justice stuff, it must be critical race theory. It's like, none of you were even talking about critical race theory three years ago. And it's the same thing. It just happens to be something people can hook onto to detract. So the point is that people have these, they have the same kinds of experiences within evangelicalism that people like Bill Pinnell had in the 60s and beyond. Um, there are some things that are better, again, like me teaching in a place like Wheaton, like my colleague, Esau McCauley, teaching at Wheaton. Um, but 
the the problem is that the the same types of things in general happen where people go in the book i say that the phase from being delighted to be in this bibliocentric movement to a place of distress and to a moment of decision about whether i stay or go because of particularly having the questions of race and how that's addressed by the theology having those things disregarded so people have to decide if they find evangelicalism guilty as charged about race. And I say that they do in the, and I, in the book, I say it is guilty. Do you stay and be part of a rehabilitation project or do you check out? And what I say is, look, I'm not making the case for everybody to leave. I am making the case that evangelicalism, I think at in its best self, can become a movement formed by its own theology at its best that opens up the ways for it being a place where minorities can inhabit it, and it's not, you know, um, being at the, at the best place if you want to know what gaslighting is, right? So for those who don't know what gaslighting is, that's when you tell people things, they tell you one thing and your response to them tells them that they probably should doubt the truth of what they're saying. That's to gaslight somebody, right? That, that they, you start making them doubt their own experience. And if evangelicalism became a place where that's not what's happening, where people are saying the one place where I'm actually being taken seriously. And the one place where people are actually trying to say, there's a there are expressions of neighbor love here that are happening that are addressing these things, describing and responding to those things. Then, then I think it, it's more, it'll be more habitable type of space for people. But um, a lot of people are fed up and they're at least exhausted. Some are traumatized. And certainly for me, minorities in the 2016 election, it was almost, it wasn't so much, I would say it's less the support of Trump than people just ignoring the fact that they were traumatized by Trump getting elected and nobody saying anything about it. And they were like, okay, where am I supposed to go? So it's not that everybody necessarily goes to a progressive type of context. Some people just kind of, kind of wander. They don't want to like abandon their commitments to God, but they don't have a communal, communal context where they feel like they can be taken seriously. So here, my question for you, and, and I know that you uh, quite strongly identify as an evangelical. What does that mean to you and why do you stay? And why is Vince Bacot happy to stay there? Um, I think one thing is that uh, I know that there's a lot of books right now. I call them secret decoder ring books. Uh, that explain what evangelicalism really is. Um, and the point isn't that they don't say some of what evangelicalism is, but by its definition, evangelicalism is a, to me, a conservative Protestant ecumenism, conservative in terms of trusting the complete truthfulness of the Bible, the old, old story of the gospel, emphasizing Christ's death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, the need to be reconciled to him personally, the need to be, you know, mission, you know, the Babington approach, right? And I think, I think on the ground, the average evangelical is not a person that I think deep down wants to be hostile to people. I think deep down they really want to be followers of Jesus. And, but, they, but they don't recognize ways that there are things that they don't know, and they don't know what they don't know. And they don't know how to deal with somebody telling them that they don't know what they don't know. Right? But if it's a Bible-believing movement, then to me, you can always put a Bible in the front of the face of an evangelical and say, you did say you believe this, right? That's very different than if I'm in a progressive space where people aren't even sure they believe it. Right? So, so, I, so it's a context where that can happen. And, and also, I think, 
so part of it is, is that, I mean, I've had positive experiences in evangelicalism. I haven't been, it hasn't been gaslighting all the time for me. Um, I do know that that happens in some contexts. So I, I don't want to acknowledge that, but there's a, just as there's a diversity of what makes the evangelical movement what it is, there are diversity of experiences that people have. And so my diversity of experiences include a lot of positive things. They're frustrating and negative things as well. But if you haven't checked, look at the, cons- the complaints that are happening in progressive spaces around race, right? So it's not, it's not something that is a unique, a problem unique actually to, con- to conservative evangelicals. I mean, so you read like Robert Jones' uh, White Too Long, uh, you know, in there he's talking about the fact that Catholics, mainline Protestants and evangelicals, that, that all of them in ways organized their religion and articulated it in a way to keep a white, a white supremacy order in place. So it's not just about conservatives. So, so the, to me, it's like, okay, well, look, every family has a problem. There are no traditions that are that way, where it's a realized eschatological community, you know, where everything, where it's perfectly shalom everywhere. So if that's not the case, then, you know, you pick your problems. Because wherever, because if you, okay, leave evangelicalism, okay, go somewhere else. Guess what? Crazy people are over there too. So, so you have to pick your crazies. <laughs> and so if, if my crazies at least purport to be willing to trust the Bible, then that's one of the reasons why. Another reason why, for using the term, is that John Perkins said, we had him on campus a few years ago. Somebody said, are you going to use their term evangelical? He goes, yes, I am. Why? Because the word gospel is in it. And I'm not giving up the word gospel to crazy people. And so um, that's another reason why. But I will say that depending upon the context of conversation or if I'm giving a lecture or something, I'm not necessarily going to lead with the term evangelical because it might lose the audience in the current moment. I might finish by saying something like, and this is why I'm a good news Christian or I want to be to convey what a good news Christianity is. And that's what I mean when I say evangelical. Great. Thank you. Yeah, one of our colleagues, uh, Charles Cook, uh, regularly uh, utters the phrase, choose your dysfunction. And you yeah, choose, uh, that's, exactly. That's what exactly. you're getting at. Exactly. So, you know, you and I uh, studied together, uh, took courses together. Uh, and uh, my next question uh, is grounded in a recognition that, that this phrase doesn't begin with you, even though you use it. Uh, in your book, you suggest that evangelicals should have a perpetually uneasy conscience. So two questions. What do you mean by that? And then the second question is, why should they have that? Sure. The reason, so the backdrop of the, of the phrase is Carl F. H. Henry, who's one of the founders of modern American evangelicalism, wrote a book in 1947 called The Uneasy Conscience of Modern Fundamentalism. And of course, as, as historians know, the book is well known because Henry wrote it, not because it was convincing, not because it was successful. It, you didn't get all of a sudden all these evangelical pastors or, or modern fundament or less separatist fundamentalist pastors that all of a sudden became socially engaged because the book came out, but it's known for that. And so there's an uneasy conscience because of not engaging around questions of poverty, race, etc. So, um, so I sort of pivot from that to talk about having a perpetually uneasy conscience. And the point is this really, if you're an evangelical and you, and again, you read this Bible and you're talking about following Jesus and you're talking about being open to the spirit, you're singing all these songs about open the eyes of my heart, Lord, and all these things. It's a strange thing to think that you've arrived at anything. 
you ought to always be in a place where you can be disturbed. I heard Sarah Copley, the British theologian, this way at the American Academy of Religion uh, a couple of years ago. Well, oh, it was at the last one where there were actually people there, San Diego. Um, and she said, a theologian ought to always be willing to be disturbed by God. And you wouldn't give anybody, in terms of a group of people, that, that ought to be willing to be those people, but I'd be evangelicals because they're the ones who are always talking about wanting to know God, wanting to know God more, wanting to follow God better, etc. So if that's the case, then you need to have a disposition that enables you to have God show you things, have God move you in particular directions, have God expose things that need to be exposed. So to have a perpetually uneasy conscience, uneasy in the sense is that I'm uneasy because I'm aware that I might be missing something. And I want God to show me what I'm missing. If I have a disposition with an uneasy conscience, I'm more inclined to be a learner rather than to say I've mastered a topic. And that when somebody talks to me about it, my goal is just to inform people about how I already have omniscience about that. Rather, an uneasy conscience recognizes that, well, I might know some things, but there's probably a whole lot I don't know. And I need to be uneasy about the fact that I don't know those things and willing to learn those things. And so if I'm willing to do that, then uh, I have a disposition where I'm willing to be disturbed by God. Then I think people are in a better place when it comes to something like race to say, oh, well, there's a lot for me to learn. Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't recognize that. I didn't know that this is what was happening. Wow, this is a problem. That's very different than automatically being defensive. Why are you being divisive? Why are you, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Things that stonewall addressing it rather than being open to addressing it. And to me, again, if evangelicals or these people are talking about, I trust God and I want to be, you know, like experience, have experiences like the Bible. It's like, well, are you willing to have Damascus Road experiences about things you don't know? I mean, and to me, evangelicals of all people, I'd be the ones that say, look, if that's what it takes for me to see the truth, then Lord, then I need, put me on the Damascus Road. And so if anybody ought to be those people, it ought to be evangelicals. That's very good. Vince, I actually had, uh, we had Sarah Coakley on, on our campus a few years ago, and I was able to have her come into a, a spiritual formation class I teach. And I asked her, what did she see at the, at the heart of spiritual formation? And I remember her answer vividly, and it so accords with what you just uh, reminded me of. She said, a radical decentering of ourselves before God and his word. So this sense of, I am going to be disrupted. I'm going to be um, have God dismantle things and rebuild things in me. A sinking stone. But you stepped in to meet me there and gave me hope beyond despair. A lot of people, you know, especially coming through COVID and um, and, and a whole bunch of things happening all over the world, certainly in Canada and certainly in your country in, in America around racial issues in the thick of all of the other stuff politically, culturally, um, sociologically going on. Uh, so let's move now to talking about some practical ways of responding. What do you see as a key 
to an active response to uh, race, racial issues, to racism? What is a key to the response? And if you could give us one example. Well, I think what the centerpiece to me, the key to the response is um, having theology that opens your way to your ethics. In other words, that your beliefs are not just about convenient abstractions that you confess, but they are about truths, and they're truths that are sort of permeating your, you know, every cell of your body, and they're truths that are then to be expressed in the way that you live your life. So, you know, to just sort of follow from the uneasy conscience thing. So, if I say that I am a Christian who is uh, taking sanctification seriously. Do I think about sanctification as being in a process where God is always showing me that the path toward holiness is a path of this decentering and being open to what God is wants to do within me? And that if I that if I want to be more and more like someone that belongs to God, am I really seeking to live a life that shows that I belong to God? And what's one of the ways that we can do that? In a divided world, it's been divided since Genesis 3, okay? But in, in our moment with this ideological polarization that's not just in the United States or Canada, it's kind of like all around the world, that, the, that I am someone who wants to demonstrate that I belong to God by showing how I'm committed to becoming the kind of person that wants to know what it's like to live with all the people that are going to be in that vision we see in Revelation 7, 9, of every tribe and tongue and nation. So I want to be transformed into that kind of person. If I want to be transformed into that kind of person, I can't do that by gaslighting people about race. I can do that by being open to having God decenter me and say, do you know what it means to, to live with people who aren't like you? It means learning from them. It doesn't mean just informing them. It means being probably more the learner than the teacher. Does it mean you have nothing to offer? You probably have a lot to offer, but so do they. And are you willing to learn from them? Are you willing to be enriched by them? Are you willing to have a more full articulation of what your faith is, a more full expression of what it is in practice as a result of what you learn from them? So I think that, that that's one of the ways that I, just one example of, of how to do that. So I'm, um, I was a, a evangelical pastor a good, you know, Baptist for 24 years before I got this gig at Ambrose. And uh, I'm imagining me driving down the road, listening to this interview, listening to you, Vince. And I'm, you know, I'm wanting, tell me what to do, Vince, tell me what to do. I want to go back to my study. I want to go back to the pulpit. Tell me what to do. What would you, what advice would you give that evangelical pastor? Sure. I would say, look at what you already preach and confess and what's already in your mission statement. What do, what do your people already say? If your people have a mantra at your church about who they, what kind of people they're supposed to be, about what kind of beliefs that they, that, to which they hold, does that open up ways for them to become people who are truly living out of those beliefs? And in living out of those beliefs, that's you know, one of the ways that you live out those beliefs is by recognizing that this is a domain that perhaps has been unexplored, that this is an area of Christian application that has been not explored or perhaps been strategically avoided, and now's the time to not avoid it, that this is an opportunity. If you say we want to be witnesses, well, well, well what do you want the world to see? 
So, so to me, I think, I think a lot of times when we think about this, it's like, okay, I need to get some stuff from the outside to show me what to do. I'm not saying that that is part of the process, but I think you're going to get going to start with your people a whole lot better if you start with what they already say and what they already know, because they've already got all this vocabulary. They already have all these this language, this theological. Well, um, are you really willing to go as far as your beliefs will take you? Do you want to see where your beliefs will take you? And I think that's the way the place to start because then people, you're starting with where people are, with what they have, right? And you're asking them: Is it possible that the things that you believe, that if you take that at full strength, it exposes ways that perhaps you didn't recognize that you're resistant to addressing this, and maybe you don't completely understand why you're resistant to it, but you know you're resistant. Are you willing to follow your beliefs when it will take you into confronting? The resistance within yourself toward these issues. I think that, to me, that's where to start. So Vince, we asked you a few questions uh, and you gave us some great responses and, and uh, all sorts of bites and sound bites in there. Is there a question we should ask you that we didn't ask you or do you have an answer to that uh, you didn't give you that you'd like to leave with, uh, with our listeners? Um, I would just say that uh, to reckon with race does not mean to be a person who is just in a domain of either just describing a problem or facing the horror of a problem and then just being in despair or lament because of that. I think it's just important for you to recognize that if you're a Christian, you are a person of hope. You know, we are, we're in Lent now, we're recording this. I mean, whether people observe that or not, we're in that season of the year <laughs> for liturgical calendar types. Uh, and we're heading toward Christ's death and resurrection. If Christ is raised, there's no reason to be hopeless. If Pentecost is far after that, if the Spirit has come and He lives within us, there's not reason for us to believe that Christians cannot be people that are transformed by the power of God. And, and if that's what's true, it's part of what's true and what God is doing in His people, then we ought to always recognize that, you know, though we've never had a revival around race, maybe we could. You know, and maybe we can hope for that. Maybe we can pray for that. We've been talking to Vince Spaco. And he is uh, an author of many books, but recently, Reckoning with Race and Performing the Good News in Search of a Better Evangelical Theology. Vince, where can people get this book? Um, if they want to get it for a cheaper price, you know, connect to your university library uh, and use the Brook, the Brill My Book program. And then you can get it for $25. If, however, you're very interested in paying a typical Brill price, then just go to the Brill website and you can pay for one book for the price of four. <laughs> okay. And what about if uh, our listeners want to follow up with you? Uh, do you have a personal website or how could they connect with you? Yes. www.vincentbaycoach.com. Thanks so much. This has been incredibly enlightening, invigorating, convicting and inspiring. And so thank you so much, Vince, for your time. 
and your your thoughts around these these critical issues in our day. Um, I'm going to go back over this interview and so many things that I want to reflect on and I want to draw out. And I think uh, we'll probably come forward and, and I do a, a whole course in reconciliation. And I think this is going to be a, a cornerstone. I'll probably have uh, future students listen to this interview. So thanks so much. Bernie, can you uh, take us out of this episode of Faith Effects? Absolutely. It's been great to have Vince uh, with us here again, even though he's not here and none of us are here. But uh, Vince, thanks for being here. I look forward to seeing you again in person and not just online. And we'll yes. uh, we'll have we'll have some, some great times and some good laughs again. Yes, hope, hopefully in San Antonio. We're hoping. In November. I'm talking to Colleen about it. So in the meantime, it's been great to have you as a guest here on Faith FX. Thank you. It's great to be here. This episode of Faith Effects was produced for Ambrose University in Calgary, Alberta by Anthony Hoisington, that's me, at Old Bear Records in Batavia, New York.